Alright guys, we're finally back with another episode. Sorry about the wait as usual. Um, we're finally going to be getting around to the four-hour response that Layton Flowers did to my episode, uh, or I should say Tyler Tyler's episode, when I went on Tyler Bella's uh, Freethinker podcast. We did an episode together uh, just covering the basic ideas laid out in the Provisionist Statement of Faith. It was a very general overview with some very general, simple questions and you would think with a four-hour response that those questions would have been exhaustively answered. But unfortunately, as you're going to see, most of the time was spent accusing us of misrepresentation, straw man, not doing our research, and most of all, flipping every issue back on Calvinism with, well, didn't God determine that? Which is, of course, nothing new with Leighton. So this is going to be the first episode in a series of episodes. I'm not sure how long it's going to take. I'm estimating three episodes total, but we'll see. And we're just going to take it bit by bit and really see whether or not Leighton answers our questions. Because you have to remember, uh, just because somebody is saying lots of things and using lots of biblical language does not necessarily mean they are getting to the actual heart of the issue or answering the question that is being asked. And I think that their statement of faith is, is very vague and leaves a lot of questions to be asked. And I don't think that Leighton did a very good job of actually answering most of them. Um, maybe that's my opinion. I'll leave it up to you guys to see as we start to go through this. So the first thing you're going to hear is Tyler uh, making a point and Leighton responding. Or, or anything like that. So we, you know, we want to be clear before we go in. Uh, the, the provisionism is distinct from Arminianism. It, it is, it is, it denies, right? It denies the one fundamental aspect of, of Arminianism that keeps Arminianism within the provisionist, or with, sorry, within the, the you know, the, the, the semi-Augustinian camp, <laughs> right. which is namely that, that, that Arminians still believe in, they still believe in original sin and in, in some type of provenient grace where God has to act first and immediately yep. on the person to overcome. So, we'll, okay. So we, we do also, just to be clear on this point, we do also believe that God initiates. He must act first. So that's not a point of distinction with Arminians. And I have to stop it right away, because that is not all that Tyler said, right? This is a very common thing that you'll have with people like Leighton and people who want to just say, well, you know what? Of course we believe God acts first. I mean, right? He sends the gospel. Uh, the sun rose, and I'm still breathing, and he gives me life and breath, and well, God's acting first, right? So of course we believe God's acting first. But that's not as simple as Tyler left it. Listen to this again. In, in some type of provenient grace where God has to act first and... Has to act first how? And immediately yep. on the person to overcome. So Immediately on the person to overcome uh, the taint of original sin on the will and nature of the fallen sinner. Okay? That is specifically what we're discussing here. The nature of the fallen human heart. Right? We're not just saying, well, does God need to act first? Does God need to send the invitation to the party, so to speak? Well, no kidding, right? That's never been throughout history what the debate has been over. The debate has been, what is the nature of the fallen sinful heart? Does it require an act of God, not just externally, such as in the preaching of the gospel, but internally, right? Does God actually have to do something? Does God actually have to change something about the fallen sinner's heart in order for them to be morally capable of responding positively to the gospel message? And this is where Arminians are not afraid to admit to the idea of original sin and the fact that fallen sinners do need a work of God on the heart. On the heart, not just a work of God in general, as if something, as if it could be something external to the heart, like simply the preaching of the gospel, but specifically a, an, an act on the heart of the person to, as Tyler says, overcome that taint of original sin. Okay, This is where the, the 
Arminian doctrine of prevenient grace comes into the picture, okay? So what, what, what a Calvinist would say is, not only does God have to work on the heart, but when he does, it is an effectual work, and the person whose, heart's, whose heart is changed has a change in nature and a change in desires, and the result is that they will believe. So it is all an effectual work of God. Doesn't mean that the person's not doing things, right? The person is believing, the person is repenting, the person is be, uh, loving God, and turning away from their sin and starting to hate their sin and all these wonderful things that we would talk about as Christians, the Calvinist credits God with that, okay? The reason that we did those things and other fallen sinners didn't is because God showed grace to us. Now, the the Arminian is going to say, well, there is that fallen sinful nature that needs a work of God. But what they would say is, instead of it being specific and effectual on God's part, it is general and widespread. It is all-inclusive. So what God does is he does this provenient grace, which I haven't touched on it hardly at all in this podcast so far. I suppose someday uh, we'll get around to, you know, Arminian, Arminianism in general, been focusing mainly on what Leighton Flowers has been putting out in provisionism. We'll get there someday. But what they would say is that provenient grace um, comes often with, yes, the gospel, but not just the gospel externally. Right? There is an actual work of God that is done in the heart, and rather than it being effectual, it simply brings them to that neutral point, which I don't think the Bible ever speaks about, but it brings them to a magical neutral point. They're brought to a neutral position, and now they're making a free will decision. Okay? But even the Arminians would say without that work of God on the heart, the will is in bondage and not entirely, quote-unquote, free, at least as far as salvation is concerned. Now, out of, out of everything that I have heard, and I don't listen to everything of Leighton's, but over the years, as I have listened, from what I recall, heard Leighton distance himself from even Arminian, Arminianism and the idea of provenient grace, okay? So here, here's the point and the problem, okay? If Leighton's going to say that he believes that God must act on the heart to overcome a fallen sinful condition, then why not just be an Arminian, right? What's the difference? And this is where I think Leighton would say, well, he's not an Arminian, and the difference is that he does not believe that the fallen sinful heart needs an act of God upon the heart. He would say it needs an act of God to make it possible, right, to open the door, send the invitation. But the question is not, does God need to act first? Everybody can say that, right? Even a full-blown Pelagian can say if God didn't make salvation possible, acting first in that sense, well then, you know, of course God's acting first. No, the question is, does God have to act first on the heart of the person in order for a positive, moral, morally positive uh, response to be possible? That's the question. We, we do also, just to be clear on this point, we do also believe that God initiates. He must act first. So that's not a point of distinction with Arminians. And to, so to say, for, for Tyler to state it that way makes it sound like we disagree with Arminians that God acts first. No, we believe God acts first. And, and then he goes, and he also says, and acts immediately on the person, which what I, what, what, I think that what he means is in an unmediated way, like there's some kind of a personal Holy Spirit wrought movement in the heart of a person to make them ontologically into a different kind of person, which is what Roger Olson argues in a partial regeneration. Uh, other Armenians, how right, that would be prevenient grace. However, take a different approach to that, just depending on where they stand on how all that works. And we've gone over that with other Armenians on our broadcast. But the point is, God has to change the heart in some respect, right? From, from either a Calvinist or an Arminian position, that God must act to change the heart rather than simply make it possible for man to change his own heart. Um, my, my view is that, yes, God does work immediately on the person through means, and the means that he works, uses, are sufficient. They, they are 
they're necessary and they are sufficient, meaning and I, God has to act, God has to work, and we believe he does and has in a sufficient way. So, And this is what's funny. I never understood Leighton's attempt here to say, well, we're the ones who have, have the means that actually mean something or the means that are sufficient. In your view, means are only sufficient if pending, you know, pending man's free will appro uh, approval or cooperation. So what are you talking about? The best you can say in your view is that the means are sufficient to make things possible, right? That's the best. You, that's the best you can say. And this is where you know we're going to see this uh, recurring theme, especially with, with Leighton, where he is saying things that sound biblical, um, but if you're not clear enough with what you're saying, then you're not really actually explaining anything, right? So your means are sufficient, but for what, right? For what? And if you were if you were to come out and be clear about it, I think the best you could say is that these means, the gospel, is sufficient to make man savable, right? But without the cooperation of man, the free will of man, then they're not sufficient, are they? At least as far as salvation is concerned. So if you want to make salvation the end, salvation the goal, then they're not sufficient. If it's simply making man savable, well, then they're completely sufficient, aren't they? They're, they're absolutely sufficient to make man savable. But that is completely different than addressing whether or not the means are sufficient to actually save someone. And anytime you're going to include the free will of man and make things dependent upon the free will of man, then you need to be clear about what your means are seeking to accomplish. He may work in a variety of different means, um, but all the means that God uses are sufficient to do what he wants to accomplish through those means. And, and so... So, uh, you see, that sounds great, but what does it mean? The means he wants to accomplish. When God sends the gospel to somebody, what does he want to accomplish? Does he want to save them? Well, if that's the case and not everybody's saved, then he failed, didn't he? Those means failed. They weren't sufficient to save everybody, were they? So again, the best you can say is that, well, the gospel is the, is, is the means that, that is sufficient to make people savable. Well, in that case, I can't argue with that, but you need to be clear about it. And I think you know that when you say it that way, it doesn't really sound very wonderful, does it? The proclamation of the gospel is a means by which the Holy Spirit makes inspired truth known. That would not have been known otherwise. And so God... Okay, it makes truth known. What does that have to do with whether or not the fallen sinful heart is morally capable of, of accepting that truth? Whether or not the fallen sinful heart would ever want to accept that truth? You see how it doesn't answer the question at all? God makes truth known through the inspired proclamation through the apostles and the proclamation of the inspired word of God, that is a means by which God sufficiently makes himself known. Sufficiently, okay, sufficiently makes himself known, okay. But but anybody could say that, right? Anybody can say that. And he also makes himself known through other means, like general revelation, through conscience, through dreams, through visions, through uh, even, I, I would even say that God can immediately work and through some kind of, you know, supernatural uh, presence within you or bringing something, a thought to your mind, for example, or some internal working, he, he could do that too. I'm, I'm sure God can do anything he wants to do. And I just think all the means are sufficient to do exactly what God means for them to do. See, sounds wonderful. But all you got out of that was God is capable of making himself known through means. Okay, so what? Making himself known, right? The farthest you can get with something like that is that man is made savable, right? The door is open, so on and so forth. None of that has addressed the state of the fallen human heart. What is God's work and relationship to the human heart? None of what he said there addressed that, that particular question. So a lot of guys don't acknowledge that. They just call us all Arminians. And Tyler's trying to be, I think, uh, 
uh, fair in saying he's not just like an Arminian. There are some differences. Um, and the big difference is we don't agree with the Calvinist view of total inability from birth, that you're born unable to believe the plainly spoken truth of God's word, because the plainly spoken truth of God's word is one of the means that God uses to call us to himself, to call us to repentance and faith. And we believe those means are sufficient to do what they're supposed to do. So that. Okay. So again, those means are sufficient to call us, right? The call, the call goes out, right? But if it's not an effectual call, then that's as far as your quote unquote sufficiency can, can cover, right? Well, it's a sufficient means to make, make himself known. That's great. Is it a sufficient means to actually save a particular person? And without their free, if you say without their free will cooperation, they're not going to be saved. Well, then it's not sufficient, is it? Again, I'm not trying to nitpick Tyler there. I'm just pointing out something that I think you have to understand to really understand the points of distinction between provisionists and Arminians on that point. What the idea of rebellion that is purposeful, willful, intentful rebellion, and and it, it paints a picture. And and before they start shouting, uh, we're going to talk about, we're going to flesh this out. But it paints a picture in my mind that we're somehow inherently good, and we just mess up every now and then, right? And Okay. I think, now, if you could find any broadcast or writing where I've actually said we're inherently good and we just sins just oops, no big deal, um, then then he would have some validation maybe for this accusation. Right now, he's just he's just giving an opinion of the impression he's gotten from something somewhere. Um, and again, something somewhere. Well, he's about to get to the, the point where I use one of his own analogies to demonstrate that that very thing. OK, and we're about to you know, I'm gonna, I have to play through more of this, but we're about to get to, to a, a particular point where he's going to say several times, where have I ever said that man is inherently good? Okay. People need to realize that it doesn't matter if you use a particular word for word phrase. When your view is putting forth a particular, a particular position, um, things can be inferred. Okay. Now I'm not saying they're always properly inferred or that you can't still make accusations of straw man or whatever. But what I'm saying is there is no avoiding the fact that when you take particular positions, even though they might not be worded in a particular way, things can certainly be inferred. And as you're going to see in their own statement of faith, it says that we deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. Right? So if you're born not guilty, how is that any different than saying that you're born good? How can you say that you're born innocent but you're not good. I, I, this is what I don't understand. And, and you're going to see that more as we, as we go through this. Uh, I would stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Colin in a which, which one has a lower view of man in their sinfulness. And this is, so this is the first example of immediately flipping, you know, let's flip this on Calvinism, which is fine, but, but let's hear the, the emotion baked into this. The, the, the one that has people who are truly blameworthy for their willful rebellion because their willful rebellion is actually... Uh, in light of a God who loves and provides for them versus in light of a God who never did love them and never did provide for them. So why would whether or not God provided for somebody make their sin any less worse? I can, that point just went over my head. And I don't see how that's nothing more than, than emotion, emotional opinion. Well, sin's, sin's worse if God provides a way for you to you know, be saved from that sin than if he didn't provide a way for you. Why? Says who, says what verse, I, I have no idea. Now, you, you tell me, just subjective. I'm not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to defend one side or the other. Just if you backed away from this debate and you say, okay, which is worse? The guy who rejects a God who first rejected him and created him for destruction or a, a guy who rejects a God who loves and provides salvation for him? Which one, objectively, which one's worse? Well, I think neither. I think this is, once again, another, another example of an argument that Leighton thinks he has against Calvinism that is equally applicable to his own position, okay? I don't have a problem 
with God creating people that will not be saved, creating people and not providing a way of salvation for them. Do I have to like that? No. Is it fun to talk about? No. Does it get my emotions worked up, perhaps? Yeah. But that doesn't dictate whether or not something's true or false, biblical or unbiblical, logical or illogical. And as I've pointed out, in almost every episode I've done in response to Leighton, even your view has God creating people who will certainly perish. And he could have created them differently so that they didn't perish, but he chose not to. He chose to create them in such a way that they would perish. So how is that any better? How is that any less determinative? How is God in, in any less of an ultimate control over the destinies of his creatures if he's the one who gets to choose when, where, and how people are created and which eternal destiny they'll end up with? At the end of the day, even if God didn't have a quote-unquote ultimate choice, even if no matter how he creates a particular person, they will end up in hell, well then, just don't create them, right? It's not that hard. God doesn't want anybody in hell. Just don't create the people that are going to go to hell and skip all the unpleasantries. And lastly, if it makes you feel better in your view to have God, quote unquote, providing a way of salvation for millions of people that he knows he will be creating in such ways that they will never be saved, never accept that way of salvation, that makes you feel better, then in my opinion, you have sacrificed the wisdom of God and the perfection in his purposes for the sake of your emotions. Remember, you have to ask and answer what the intentions of God are in the actions that he takes. And if his intention in providing a way of salvation for every single person who's ever lived was to save every single person who ever lived, then those intentions fail the vast majority of the time, don't they? And once again, the best you can say is move the intention of God from actually saving them onto just making them save a bull. Are you willing to come right out and say that? That God's intention in providing the way of salvation is merely to make them save a bull? but not actually result in their effectual salvation? Anybody who's, who's being truly objective would have to say, obviously the person who's rejecting a God who loves and provides is a worse sinner. Why? This is, this is a just because Leighton says so, just because his emotions say so. He used the word objective. There's no objective truth to the idea that your sin would be worse if God didn't provide for you. I mean, how many times have I heard Leighton even say, uh, responding to Calvinists and some of their criticisms, and I think he has a, you know, some of those criticisms are, are off base. And Leighton has a right to point out, even in his view, God didn't have to provide for anybody. Didn't have to, right? He chose to. He freely chose to. So Leighton, hypothetically, if God didn't provide for everybody or chose, let's just say, to provide for nobody and everybody perishes, was God worse? Was that a worse choice on God's part? Would God have been doing something bad? I mean, see, this is the problem when you take your emotions and your subjective standards and try to fit God into them or have God play by them. So my view of sin and the corruption of man who re reject the things of God is actually much more blameworthy and much more sinful and corrupt than what Colin can defend from his perspective because the reason people are willfully rebellious on... And here he's going to go into... I just need to stop and say that we're not... This is one of his talking points. Well, blameworthiness, right? In Calvinism, people have this excuse, even though I just pointed out the same excuse in his view. Um, yada, yada, yada. Man has an excuse, and so he thinks that in his view, man is more blameworthy. And I'm pointing out that in neither view is man more or less blameworthy. That was not what I said. Let me play what I said once again. The idea of rebellion, that is purposeful, willful, intentful rebellion. And, and it, it paints a picture. And I said it paints a picture of what? And, and before they... Uh, more or less blameworthiness? Before they start shouting, uh, we're going to talk about it, we're going to flush this out, but it paints a picture in my mind that we're somehow inherently good, and we just mess up every now and then, right? And... So we mess up every now and then, and I think now if you could, find and I think I'm about to say that that sin's really no big deal. Okay, so maybe I'm a little sarcastic there, 
but my point was which view is taking sin more seriously, right? Not who's more blameworthy, but which view is taking the concept more seriously as it relates to a worldview. And I just have to point out that my view, the Calvinist view, has sin affecting our very nature, right? It affects our, our heart and our desires so much that as a fallen sinner, we don't want to stop sinning, right? We love our sin and we live in it and we hate the things of God, right? We love sin and hate God. And so it's not that we can't stop sinning even if we wanted to. It's that we can't stop sinning precisely because we don't want to, right? And it's not that we can't accept God even if we wanted to. It's we can't accept God precisely because we don't want to, okay? And I've pointed this out in past episodes. We've gone over the moral ability on you know on multiple times. But the point is, that we don't want to stop sinning because our very heart is affected by it, okay? It's not just this, well, I'm a poor alcoholic who's made some bad choices in the past and am now suffering as a result. My view has sin being willful rebellion from the start, and yes, man becomes more willful, more hardened, more willful in that rebellion, but at no point are they painted as some sort of victim. And the point is that my view has sin as a concept in the worldview, has sin being far worse than your view, which has sin being this idea that is happening in spite of people not wanting to, right? So in my view, people sin because they want to, and they can't stop sinning because they don't want to stop sinning. It's a moral inability. In your view, people sinned, yeah, they sinned at some point because they wanted to, but now they're in this weird sort of bondage where even though they want to stop sinning, because you think fallen sinners can actually want to stop sinning, for the right reasons, right? That they they need help from God to basically accomplish their desire to stop sinning. And I think that that is completely unbiblical, okay? And this is, once again, this is an illusion that is when you look out into the world and you see unsaved people wanting to quote-unquote stop sinning, okay? What they're really doing is they are selfishly wanting to change their lives for the sake of themselves or perhaps their family, or because they don't want to lose their job, or they don't want to look bad, right? All these selfish reasons, okay? So as a Calvinist, I'm not saying that people can't outwardly appear to want to make their lives quote-unquote better, but inwardly in the heart, since they do not have God as their focus, right? Then they're not actually wanting to stop sinning. They're just wanting to do different sins, right? And we can get into this topic of these, uh, these addict analogies that Leighton often uses paint the picture of someone who has, you know, messed up sometime in the past, and they have this actual true desire to stop doing what is bad and start doing what is good. But they just can't because this quote-unquote addiction is holding them back, and they need God to come along and help them overcome that addiction, right? So this is my point, is it paints this victim mentality where fallen sinners can actually want to make themselves better, and they just need God's help to do it. My view has man in a condition where they can't stop sinning precisely because they don't want to. They love their sin so much that they will never desire to do what is good. Truly good is a key, key point there. Truly good. We're talking about good with God as its focus, right? Not good for the sake of family or for selfish reasons, outwardly, you know, appearing good to us. We're talking about actual good, righteousness, right? They love their sin so much that they don't desire to do what is good. So my view takes sin far more seriously than a view that paints man as a victim, okay? 
Now, it's a completely different story if we're talking about Christians whose hearts have already been changed, and yet a remnant of sin still remains, so that there's a mixture of good and bad, you know, at work there, so that there's a battle taking place, right? Christians can, at times, truly desire what is good because of God's work in them, but they can also, at times, truly desire what is bad because the sinful nature still remains, which is what Paul is saying in Romans 7, right? He does what he does not want to do, right? That's, and, and this is Leighton's problem. Because of Leighton's weak view on the fallen sinful nature of man and what it means to have a fallen sinful nature, Leighton thinks that this is true of fallen man as well, right? This idea that I just put forth that I think Christians, right, the idea of struggling with sin, wanting to do what is good, hating their sin, um, as Paul says, doing what he doesn't want to do, Leighton thinks that fallen man can genuinely desire to do what is right in the eyes of God and genuinely start hating their sin. And they can, they can have this condition of a heart, right, prior to a, a regenerative work of God, prior to God's work on their heart. And that's why he uses these analogies of an addict to describe not just Christians who struggle and battle against sin, but even fallen sinners as well. And this is where I think Leighton's view as a provisionist, provision, provisionism as a whole, goes completely wrong. Because the question I would have in light of all of this is what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Besides the obvious, well, they've been saved. I'm talking about the condition of the heart now. What's different about a regenerate heart and an unregenerate heart? Right? And don't distract, if Leighton ever gets around to answering this, don't just say, well, I believe man, uh, God regenerates man's heart. I'm not asking you. Of course you believe God, God regenerates man's heart. I'm asking you what that means. What is it? What's the result? What's the difference? And if you're going to say that fallen man can already truly desire what is good and already repent of their sin and already start hating their sin and already love God and the things of God and already do all these things that the Bible paints the regenerate heart as being able to do, if the unregenerate heart can already do those things, then what? I'm not going to ask what the point of regeneration is, but I'm going to ask what the result of regeneration is. What's the difference between an unregenerate and a regenerate heart? I think that is an extremely important question in this debate. And this is why, um, with all these, you know, addict analogies that Leighton has, he views fallen man as waging war on their own sin prior to regeneration, as if that's even a possibility in the first place. You see, in my view, man doesn't, fallen sinners don't wage war on their sin or even want to, Right? It's not that man can want to wage war on sin and want to change his ways and, oh, he just needs God to help him. No, until God works on the heart, they will never want to wage war on their sin. They live in it. They love it, right? Calvinists have man living in sin and loving their sin and enjoying their sin, and therefore a radical change in their heart is required in order for those desires to change. Because the reason people are willfully rebellious on Calvinism is because God has created them that way. Okay, I'm going to start this over, but this is, you know, Let's flip this back on and talk about how terrible Calvinism is. Because the reason people are willfully rebellious on Calvinism is because God has created them that way. In other words, they, because of the fall, became in a condition by sovereign decree where they can only rebel against the things of God. Which is worse, the person who's born with the incapacity to do what is what, what God is calling them to do, or the person who can do what God's calling them to do but chooses not to? That is an unbelievably massive either misrepresentation or misunderstanding of what Calvinism teaches. Not the first part, right? He, Leighton always loves to point to the ultimate and God determined this and so it can't be otherwise. I'm not going to argue with that. I embrace that as a Calvinist. God has determined all things, including the fact that particular people will be born and be morally, keyword morally, unable to repent and believe 
because they're fallen sinners born in the line of Adam on and on. But listen to this last part. What, what God is calling them to do or the person who can do what God's calling them to do but chooses not to. See, Leighton thinks in his view, man can do what God calls them to do and chooses not to. As if, that, as if I can't say that exact same thing. And I just laid it out over and over, right? Man has the faculties of faith. Man can believe in things. Man has the faculties of love. Man can love things. Man has the faculties of hate. Man can hate things. So, in the general sense of can man believe in God? Well, sure, if he wanted to. Can man love God and the things of God? Well, sure, if he wanted to. Can man hate his sin and the things of the world? Well, sure, if he wanted to. But the question is, why does man ever want to in the first place? You see, this is the problem when you blur the distinction or don't allow for the distinction between natural faculty ability and moral ability. And you'll notice, man could love God if they wanted to. Why would any fallen sinner ever want to? What's the Bible's answer to that question? People like Leighton assume free will. There's not a single verse in the Bible. They have to assume it. There's not a single verse in the Bible that says the reason this person loves God is because of free will. Or the reason this person repented of their sins and believed the gospel is because of free will. Not a single verse says it. They have to assume it. Calvinists look at instances in scripture, which are merely descriptions of actions where people are repenting and believing or accepting the gospel or all these wonderful things. And we don't stop there. We don't just make the assumption, well, determinism or well, God did it. We go to the parts of the Bible that actually answer why. Why did a fallen sinner love God? Why did a fallen sinner repent of their sin? Why did a fallen sinner turn away from their sin and turn toward God? The Bible's answer each and every time when you go to the verses that actually address that answer is God. God's power. God's action. God's grace. So this last part. Which is worse, the person who's born with the incapacity to do what is what, what God is calling them to do? or the Incapacity to do what God, is, what God is calling them to do? What kind of incapacity, Leighton? Do they lack the faculty? Or do they just not want to? A person who can do what God's calling them to do, but chooses not to. And I can just as easily say that. As a full-blown Calvinistic determinist, man could believe in God if they wanted to. They just choose not to. Again, I think objectively, the person who has the ability to do otherwise is the more uh, guilty person, is the more blameworthy person. Otherwise in what sense, right? And this is why it's so weak, uh, you know... And this is the problem is a lot of people, they don't think these issues through enough. I'm not talking about Leighton. I know Leighton knows these things. I'm, I'm more concerned about his audience, right? They just hear the phrase, well, could do otherwise, could do otherwise. What do you, in what sense, right? In the ultimate sense? Well, no Christian believes you can do otherwise in the ultimate sense. You can't do other than what God knows you're going to do tomorrow. You can't, right? So you obviously don't mean that sense of otherwise, do you? So in what sense do you mean? And if you're going to talk about, well, they could have if they wanted to, that's merely a hypothetical that, that anybody, including a determinist, can say. If somebody is born in a condition where they can only hate and reject the things of God. If God creates you knowing that you're going to end up in hell, can that be described as a condition where you can only end up in hell? <laughs> Obviously, right? So you face the same problem because every theist, period, faces this quote-unquote problem, right? I just don't see it as a problem. That person is, is a victim. He's just, he's just doing what he was created to do. He's just... Well, if God creates me in such a way that I'm, in your view, in such a way that I'm going to end up in hell, and he could have created me in such a way that I end up in heaven, whose ultimate choice is it which life I get? Whose ultimate choice is it where I actually end up? It's God's ultimate choice, because he's my creator, isn't he? He's the one who chooses whether I'm going to end up in heaven or end up in hell. And I'm a victim. 
If I'm if I'm one of the unlucky people whom God chose to create in such a way that I would end up in hell, I'm just a poor victim, and I shouldn't be blamed. You know, I am what I am because this is the way God made me to be. Yeah, I, and I do what I do and end up where I end up because that's the way in which God created me, and that's the life that God gave me. Could have created me differently, or not at all. But here I am, and it wasn't up to me. And that's not as blameworthy. So our view of, of the sinfulness of man and the corruption of man, I think, is higher, and men are more blameworthy. And again, none of this is about blameworthiness. This was about the seriousness of the view of sin and its relationship to the human heart. On our system than on the Calvinistic system. And I, and I think uh, Calvinists would have a, a hard, be hard-pressed to be able to defend themselves against that accusation. It's pretty simple, especially when your, your objections here are equally applicable to you. This, this is what leads to the overall provisionist attitude that, that, well, we just we have to recognize that we've messed up and, and we need a savor rather than understanding that we love our sin, right? It's something that, that is an intentful, willful thing. And why, why, do, why do we love our sin on Calvinism? Because God decreed us to. Ultimately, sure. But there's also storyline level, reality-based reasons behind why we love our sin. And at the heart of the issue is the topic at hand. That is, our hearts are sinful. Why do we love our sin on provisionism? Because we choose to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and follow sin instead of the things of God when we could and should do otherwise. How is, how is that not true in Calvinism? You see, this is Leighton's problem. He wants to say, if the ultimate is true, that God determines something, right? If God's in ultimate control, then, then the way things play out doesn't matter, right? None of it matters. Listen to this again. To suppress the truth and unrighteousness and follow sin instead of the things of God when we could and should do otherwise. That is precisely what Calvinists say sinners do. We just say they do it all the time, nonstop. They suppress the truth in their sinfulness, willingly and wantingly, by nature. Okay? But Leighton thinks that because God determined it to be that way, then we actually can't have that view, and that's his view. And this is where he's just a, a, a missing the boat entirely. And some people actually do choose to do otherwise. Some people raised in a family. Why? Family of God raised to, to, to learn. Whoa, that sounds like a you're giving determinative reasons now. You're giving things external to them. That's that's a termism late, and that's not free will. Learn the correct things. They do choose to confess their sinfulness and follow the things of God. They don't Why? Is it because of God's work on their heart or not? And this is what you're never going to get him to say. Press the truth and unrighteousness their entire life and grow hard into Galus to it. Now, the Calvinists would say, well, the reason they do that is because they were elect and effectually caused to do that, but that's question begging. It's question begging. No, it's, it, it can be completely demonstrated biblically. Um, you, you have to establish that the reason that some people don't suppress the truth and unrighteousness and follow God is because God unilaterally picked them before they were born and effectually causes them to do that. And that's not something I think you can find in, in Scripture. But um, <laughs> All right. So is this, and I had just mentioned this, you know, uh, conveniently, just mentioned this idea that here you have people who believe and people who don't believe. And why do people believe? And Leighton says, well... The Calvinist answer to that question is found nowhere in Scripture. Let's just go through a couple. Ephesians 2.8, By grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? It is pretty well established that the, the, the thing that is not of your own doing in this verse is the entire preceding phrase, which is, for grace you've been saved through faith. It includes your faith, okay? Why did you believe in your, and your unbelieving neighbor didn't? It's because of God's doing, his gift that he bestowed upon you. It includes your faith. It includes your response, right? We have Acts 16, 14, which says, One who heard uh, us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Paul was speaking to a crowd. Lydia accepted what he said, 
and other people rejected it. Why was there the difference? Why did Lydia accept and they rejected? Is the answer free will? No. The answer is something that God did. God opened her heart, an action of God on the heart. You could get this concept out of Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, where that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. So the entire process, right? Those whom he predestined, he calls and justifies and glorifies. It's all God's action, God's work. Free will is nowhere to be found. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the name of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? So some believe and some don't. Why? Because God appoints them to eternal life. And yet, according to Leighton, don't suppress the truth and unrighteousness and follow God is because God unilaterally picked them before they were born and effectually causes them to do that. And that's not something I think you can find in, in Scripture. But um, we're finding it all over the place here. Here's another one, 2 Timothy 1, 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. Huh. Nothing about free will there. It's all the action of God. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Why do some believe and some don't? God grants it to them. 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? We could go on and on. But the point here is I've got the verses that answer the question that Leighton just asked. Where does the Bible say that the reason people stop suppressing the truth and start accepting the things of God is God and his work? Well, it's all over. But as I have always pointed out, there's not a single verse in the Bible that says that the reason, that the ultimate reason that somebody believed was because of free will. Okay? Not, it's just always assumed. It is always assumed. This is the whole point. You'll keep you'll keep hearing him say that. Oh well, it's because they love sin. But you always have to. Okay, on your view, why do they love sin? And as I've always in past episodes repeatedly pointed out, there's two answers to the why question, right? You can always say because God, because God determined it, because God planned it, because God purposed it, because God worked it. However you want to say it, yes, ultimately God. Even your view must recognize the quote unquote because God answer to the why question, whether it's because God allowed it or because God created it in that way, or because God sustained that person's existence while they did that, kept their heart beating, so on and so forth, you do not get to pretend like you can disconnect these things from God's ultimate determinations. Everybody has the because God answer to the why question, whether or not you want to recognize it. But you can also say the storyline level reasons. We are fallen sinners born in the light of Adam with corrupt, sinful hearts, which results in, actually has a meaningful result in our moral actions, which is unfortunately, apart from the grace of God, always sinful, right? And, you know, as I always point out, whether or not Leighton wants to realize it or admit it, even his view has to account for the two answers to the why question, right? So I could easily say, Leighton, in your view, why does man... That's okay. On your view, why do they love sin? In your view, why do people love sin, Leighton? And you're going to say, well, because... Uh, they choose to, or they, you know, they want to, or that free, you might even say free will. Okay, that's great. But don't they also love sin because God created them in such a way that they would, right? God didn't, God didn't have to create them, right? He knows the future of his own actions. He knows the results of his own actions, right? God knows if I create this person in this particular way, all they're going to do is sin and hate me and end up in hell. So now God has a choice. I can create them differently. I can create them not at all, but he chooses to create billions of people who will only ever love their sin. And it wasn't ultimately up to them, was it? 
So even you have the two answers to the why question, right? Why are they hating the things of God? Well, because God decreed them to, and they couldn't do otherwise. See, and, and to Leighton, that's the only answer that matters. You can't have that answer along with the outplay of that answer in time, which is fallen sinful hearts. Nope. If God determined it to be some way, then the some way is irrelevant to Leighton. But as I pointed out, even in his view, God creates pe people in particular ways, particular scenarios and situations, knowing the results, and it's not up to those people to be created. God is in the ultimate position, making the ultimate choice. He has the ultimate say in who exists and how, how they exist. And you have the same problem and you just don't realize it. And you've got to, you, if Calvinist, the consistent side of the Calvinism would just come right out and say that, then everybody, I think, would be able to judge what they're actually saying and go, oh, well, that doesn't seem tenable. That doesn't seem workable. That doesn't seem rational. Well, there's particular, I pointed this out um, in one of my past episodes responding to Leighton. There's particular context where we do come out and say it, right? When you're talking about the ultimate issues, has God predestined all things, determined all things, planned all things, purposed all things? What is God's relationship to sin and evil? Just did an episode on that. When you're asking those, con you know, the questions in those contexts, sure, you can come right out and say it. But when you're, when you're simply having discussions about what's happening and occurring in time, you don't always need to be mentioning, oh, hey, God determined it, right? In the same way that you don't ne always need to be mentioning that God allowed it, right? In your view, God allows every sinful act that you could ever point at. God allowed it, right? So does the fact that you're not always, every time you talk about sinful, uh, the sinful actions of man, the fact that you're not always saying, hey, don't forget God allowed it, does that mean you're being dishonest? Does that mean you're not being um, clear to people? Does that mean you're not coming right out and saying like that God allows it? Why aren't you just always coming right out and saying uh, that God allows everything, Leighton? You want to point out a sinful act and say, God allowed it, he could have stopped it, chose not to, right? Why aren't you always pointing that out when you talk about those issues? And remember, guys, that even a view of God allowing things isn't a very popular view in the grand scheme of things, because millions of people throughout history have rejected the idea that a good God could stand by and do nothing to stop all the horrible evils occurring around us. All the Calvinists are doing is taking issues and quote-unquote problems and, and theological struggles that every Christian has to address, and we're just manning up and, and addressing them. Whereas Leighton wants to pretend that he, his view is immune to those problems, that they don't exist, right? But for any Christian, they do matter, and they should matter, and you should think these things through. And they would, they would walk away from it. But very rarely will you hear a Calvinist come out and say the whole thing. They'll just say, oh, it's because we hate our sin. We just, we hate the things of God. Why? And very rarely will you hear Leighton come out and say the quote-unquote whole thing, right? Well, this person sinned because of their free will, blah, blah, blah. Okay, and God allowed it and could have stopped it, but chose not to. Why'd you leave that out? Is it because it doesn't sound very nice? If you would take what you're accusing us of doing here, trying to hide things from people and make it more palatable, just flip it right back on you and realize that if you don't consider that a valid argument against you and you not mentioning God allowed it and could have stopped it, but chose not to every single time you talk about the sinful actions of human beings, it's not a very strong argument against us either. Because God created us to hate the things of God. And he holds us accountable for what he created us to be and to do. And we're going, that, that's not Bible. That's just Calvinism. That's just a system imposed onto these things. Now, Yeah, and we could get into every little detail at some point, but I, I need to keep going here. Otherwise, we're going to have a three-hour episode. To be fair, what a Calvinist say, well, no, 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 no. That, that's the result of the fall. That, that is what we are by nature. You'll hear, oh, it's by nature. Okay, what, what do you mean by nature? With a view that believes in and teaches exhaustive divine determinism, we don't believe in Mother Nature. So what you are by nature is what you are by divine decree. Okay, so the fall happened by divine decree, and the results of the fall happened by divine decree on consistent Calvinism. Yes, precisely. And I just went through this. This is Leighton's repeated error of basically saying, well, since God determines all things, the content and the outplay 
of the all things is irrelevant. It just doesn't matter, right? All that matters is God determined it, right? It doesn't matter how God determined that something occur. The fact that he determined that it occur means we get to ignore the how. I mean, what if I were to look at the free will view and say something like, all that free will stuff you're talking about, man having free will, is completely irrelevant. Because God gave man that free will knowing all the bad stuff that would happen. And he could have stopped any of it anytime it happened, but he chose not to. And by doing so, ensured that it would happen. Therefore, it doesn't matter that man has free will. It's completely irrelevant because God allowed it and could have stopped it. And God set it all in motion, knowing the results. It's all God's fault. Well, that's exactly what you're doing here. You're saying that Calvinism has God determining things. Therefore, how he determined it, why he determined it, in what way it plays out, the means to the ends, completely irrelevant. And it's just not a fair way to argue or represent a view. And therefore, when Adam and Eve fell, which wasn't an accident, it was by divine decree. In your view, it was by divine allowance, right? God created it, knowing it, knowing, knowing it would happen, had every opportunity to stop it, chose not to. If that's not a divine decree, I don't know what is. They fell into a condition by which they would... And by the way, decree, determine, I prefer to use the word determine. Did God determine to create this world in which all those things happened? So God did. He did. He, he, you're going to tell me God determined to create the world, but he didn't determine the contents or the outplay of that world, right? That is an absurd, illogical claim that you'll never be able to back up. And then when you focus in on a particular thing in time, like the fall, did God determine to allow the fall? Was it a choice that God made? He wasn't forced to allow it, was he? He chose to. God determined to allow the fall. That's a determination of God, right? So you can just keep repeating this Calvinism and God's divine decree thing over and over and over. But you have God determining to allow something and determining that it will occur by allowing it, right? And I pointed this out in my episode titled, God Determined It is True of Any Christian View, right? God Determined It is True of Any Christian View. Anything you can point at in, in this, in this uh, creation, anything that occurs, God Determined It is, is true, not just in the Calvinist view, but in the non-Calvinist view as well. The only difference is that in Calvinism, it's God's active determination, like, like the author of a book. He determines everything in the way it's going to be actively, whereas in the free will view, like Leighton's, it's a reactive determination, but it's still a determination, okay? God reactively chose and determined to allow something to occur. By allowing it to occur, he determined that it occur, and if he didn't want it to occur, he could have determined to not allow it to occur. He could have determined to stop it. He could have created people differently. He could have created somebody at a different time in a different place different lives altogether. You can't escape God being in ultimate control of all these things, no matter how hard you want to try and pretend like it's not applicable to your view. And please do not fall for the common dismissal that says something like, well, if you think that God allowing something is the same thing as God causing it, blah, blah, blah. That is not the point here, okay? Those are certainly different methods of control and determination, but the fact remains that it is still control and determination of what does and does not occur. This is what you need to explain away. You need to explain away how God allowing something that he could easily stop is not God being in determinative control. It's, it's not an active causative control, but it is still a reactive control, determinative control nonetheless. They fell into a condition by which they would only hate and reject the things of God, which did not happen by accident. It was a decree decision of God. Yeah, just as in your view, it was a decision of God to create people in such a way that they will only ever hate him and go to hell. Even you have that conscious decision of God. He didn't say, oops, I didn't know they weren't going to be able to respond to me. Yep. And he didn't say, oops, I, di I didn't know that that person I created wouldn't ever respond to me and end up in hell. He knew it. And he made a determination to create that person in that way, 
could have created them differently, but chose not to. You're stuck with the same problem, dude, and you just can't see it. Positively anymore. No, he created it that way. Yep. In everybody's view. You are born in a condition where you cannot respond positively even to the gospel, and yet God holds you responsible for what you do with the gospel. Right. And that's because responsibility has absolutely nothing to absolutely nothing to do with your ultimate ability, your quote unquote ultimate ability to have done otherwise. This is something you need to get out of your head. You can't ultimately do other than what God knows you will do. And this is not knowledge equals causation. This is God's knowing the results of his own actions to create you when, where, and how he does. If he has a million different ways to create you, and you admit that that's a million different lives, then each of those lives and your actions are, are grounded in the way in which he creates you. You cannot disconnect those things. So God's foreknowledge of what you will do is the result of his own action to create you in the ways that he does. And once you recognize that it's God's ultimate choice how to create you, it's not your ultimate choice, then you'll see that even in your view, God is holding you responsible for a set of actions. If you want to consider a life as a set of actions, he's holding you responsible for a set of actions that was ultimately up to him when you follow it down the logical road, because he was the ultimate decider of whether or not you exist and where, when, and how you exist. You can't get around this. So once you stop trying to understand human responsibility as if you are the God of your own existence, the ultimate determiner of your existence, and realize that it's part of the it's part of the way God has chosen to do things in creation, and it deals with the fact that if people had wanted to, they could have done otherwise. The faculties were there, but the desire was not. That is where human responsibility lies. Every person who has ever lived, and every person who will ever be guilty of rejecting the gospel, had the faculty of faith by which they could have accepted the gospel if they had wanted to. The problem was because of their sinful hearts, they never would have wanted to. And if you're going to fire back with the usual, well, God determined that they would never want to, that's just as true in any Christian view. Even you believe that God creates people he knows never will want to. And therefore, by creating them in that way, he has determined, guess what, that they will never want to. It goes both ways. And Calvinists just expect you to say, uh-huh, that's just the way it is, and not question it. We're going, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's, it's unintuitive, and it's unbiblical. There's just no support for this. Now, I know... And, you know, Leighton's all about the total depravity thing, and I'm just going to have to do a full-blown episode on that. It's going to take more preparation and time. Eventually it's going to happen, but too much to get into here. Calvinists think they have proof text for it, and that's why we have this broadcast, to go over some of those proof texts that they think supports this concept of determinism. Full thing on our part. Um, and, and we need to be saved from our own wicked hearts, right? And uh, we need a powerful change in our heart, which is uh, the basis of our... Notice... You know, we're, we're going through here, we're still talking on topic about the nature of the human heart, and Leighton's just going to continue flipping it back on Calvinism. This this was a very weak response on his part, no offense, but just, you know, four hours, and basically it was just an excuse to talk about how ridiculous Calvinism is. And once again, as you're about to see here, not realizing that these types of objections are just as applicable to your own position. Our desires and we'll Yeah, you need a powerful change of your heart to powerfully change that which God caused to be that way. So God's cleaning up his own mess. He created you to be this horrible, corrupt person who hates him, and then he has to step in and change you to be this person who loves, loves him. That is, that's correct, right? You can mock that and be sarcastic about it and say he's cleaning up his own mess if you want, but that's just a sarcastic way of saying that God has a purpose in everything that occurs. Yes, God creates particular people as fallen sinners who hate him so that, right, so that he can come along and bestow grace upon them and save them from that sin and cause them to start loving him and then spend an eternity with him. 
and glorify his son, Jesus Christ, in the process, right? God has a purpose in all of that stuff, and that's how he chose to do it, right? So I'd, I'd be careful with mocking the purposes of God and the way he's chosen to do things. Just because it's not the way you would have done it doesn't mean that it's not the way God is doing it. And he creates everyone to be a hater unless he steps in unilaterally and changes the heart of some people to make them a lover. That's correct. And that's precisely what the Bible teaches. And it's very God-glorifying. And then he expects us to worship him for making us into lovers. Yeah, you better believe it. While you will spend all of eternity only ever being able to love God because of the work that God did on your heart. And you better be praising him for that. While leaving the rest of everyone else in the condition he created them to be in as haters. Yeah. And he has a purpose in their punishment and sin and glorifying his justice and wrath. And you see, your problem is with God's purposes, right? And just because it's not the way you would have done it doesn't mean that it's not the way God is doing it, right? That is a very, very bad way to look at the world and theology. And we're not supposed to question the rationality of this? We're not, we're not supposed to... Uh, rationality? I, I have to point out, there's nothing irrational about what you just said. All there is is you don't like it. There's nothing illogical. There's nothing irrational. There's just, well, I, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it that way. That's all you've got going for you, Leighton. But don't talk about questioning the rationality of it, right? There's nothing irrational about it at all. And if we do question it, you're going to quote Romans 9 out of context and say, who are you, old man, to question God? Which what you really mean is, who are you, old man, to question the Calvinistic interpretation of this chapter is basically what it gets down to. Well, either of us could say that about either's interpretation, right? I happen to think that's precisely what Romans 9 is teaching. You, you can't get much more word for word than Romans 9, Okay. I want to read a couple quickies here. I know everybody thinks they've got their answers to Romans 9. If Romans 9 can't teach Calvinism, nothing in the Bible ever could. And this shows you that they, they can find a way out of anything. They can convince themselves to get around anything, right? What shall we say? Is there injustice with, with, is there injustice with God? By no means. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. It's God's choice. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's God's choice. So then it depends. What is it? Salvation is clearly the context. It depends not on human will or exertion. Did you catch that? It depends not on human will. Right? Everybody likes to talk about the, oh, we're not saving ourselves. Nobody's saying that. That's not the argument. It does not depend on human will. Salvation does not depend on human will. That doesn't mean it doesn't include the human will. That doesn't mean that the human will is not involved in salvation. What it means is God's choice of who to save does not depend on human will. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this very purpose, I raised you up, right? God had a purpose in Pharaoh's entire existence. God raised him up. It doesn't say God had a purpose in what Pharaoh raised himself to be, raised himself up to be. It says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And he, he has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. So then you're going to say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? This is what you have heard, Leighton, so far in this episode, object to continually, and you will hear it throughout this entire response. Who's more blameworthy? Why does God, how can God find fault with people whom he creates to be this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel honorable use and another for dishonorable use? On and on. We all know the verse. If that can't teach Calvinism, nothing can, okay? And I'm happy to do an episode on Romans 9, debate Romans 9. It's as clear as can be. And by the way, if you're interested in hearing a, a good defense of the Calvinistic view of Romans 9, check out Tyler's debates on, the, on that topic. You can go to YouTube and type in uh, Tyler Vela 
Romans 9, and you'll see him pop up right there. Definitely worth listening to. But I'm going long again, so we're going to have to move on here. Um, and so, so there's that. The, the other thing is, I, I do agree that through that, what what is missing from this, and I think it is indicative of what you're saying. What's missing from this is really that that initial condition. So you know, as Calvinists, as Reformed, we, you know, we hold the tulip, right? And that, and, and I normally describe tulip as the T, the total depravity, is kind of the initial conditions, the initial state, and the ulip, right? Everything else is almost like this rest, this this Russian nesting doll of this of this very tightly consistent, interconnected doctrines, one flows from the other. All right, I totally agree with what Tyler says there. You, you start with total depravity and everything else, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. It all follows because it is all the things that God does. But right. like they, they're just kind of in the context. They're in the water of that of that total depravity. That's the situation within which you understand it all. Um, and, so, and so, I like that description, by the way, because like I, like I've said, the T is the foundation for the entire thing. If you adopt this concept that we're born unable to believe the gospel, we're unable to respond positively to the gospel because of the nature we're born in. You're you're, you're starting with a Calvinistic premise, which is introduced by Augustine. I, I think by by all standards of, of, of historical examination, uh, the first 400 years didn't teach this total inability concept that people are just born unable to respond positively to the gospel message. So I'm fine with that. Let's pretend that's true, that there's there's a, you know, I, I've never really understood this argument, this, this, this historical uh, side of argumentation where, oh, we don't see this really debated until this point in time. Well, who cares, right? That has nothing to do with whether or not it's biblical. That just means that people didn't debate it or argue about it or talk about it for a particular period, right? I don't see anything strange about that. Um, and I don't see how I could not just as easily say that total depravity, the view that is that you see being brought up at a point in time, was the view that was held all along. And the only reason you see it popping up is because people started deviating from it and arguing against it, right? Why can't that be true? Why can't the idea of total depravity have been the biblical understood view all the way through up until the point where it pops it up quote unquote and you see it being talked about because people started deviating from it and arguing about it right how come that's not a a plausible view of history right i i just i say this to to say that i don't care right i don't care about the it's not that i don't care about history i don't care that a particular issue wasn't quote unquote flushed out until a particular point in time right i, I really don't care and so this concept is all introduced into the church, this way of thinking, which is consistent with some of what Gnostics taught with regard to uh, the nature of man from birth and corruption and those kinds of things. And so there's some consistency with Gnosticism and what the foundation of the entire Calvinistic premise is, concept of total inability. So I agree with him. It all does really rest in and on top of this TF2, the total inability of man from birth, as God destined it to be. So it's not by accident that we become totally unable to respond even positively to God's gospel appeals. And, you know, I could just as easily say that Leighton has particular views, such as corporate election, which, you know, comes about later and is adopted by so-and-so at a particular point in time, and nobody ever talked about it until, which is actually true of corporate election, if you look at when it, I, I think I remember Tyler saying it came about fairly recently. Um, so, you know, just, I don't make those arguments because I, I, I don't see any weight to them. And yet I, I've, I've seen Leighton make those types of arguments quite a bit. Oh, well, it's got, it's tainted with Gnosticism and it only came about with Augustine. And like, who cares, dude? The question is, is it biblical or not? Is it logical, logically consistent or not? And with that said, I think this is a good point to stop this first uh, episode. Like I said, I, I estimate three or four episodes in total. I'm going to try to keep these responses from now on to an hour each. I think a lot of people prefer that, at least from the feedback that I've gotten so far. If I remember correctly, things are going to get, you know, a little more ramped up in the uh, the next few segments, so to speak. So it should be something to look forward to. Uh, don't worry, I don't think 
should take more than a week or two for the next episode. I, re- I really don't. In fact, I think I have uh, the entire audio for the next episode already segmented out. So it's just a matter of uh, making some notes and hitting record and, and rambling on and doing some final editing. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Uh, don't forget to share it around. You can find Consistent Calvinism Podcast on YouTube and all your favorite podcasting apps. And you can follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism for a lot of fun discussions there as well. We'll see you next time, and remember to stay consistent, my friends.